guys here? Jeff, way to go. Awesome. They're here. You guys, somebody said you're from Virginia, right? And the Philippines, Arizona. Where else? A couple places. Florida. Florida. There you go. Australia. You win. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, welcome here. We're glad to have you here with PSCC with us. Isn't Jeff a good dude? He's a good dude. We love him. It's awesome. Hey, listen, I also want to remind you uh, of our big outreach we have this coming uh, August, or moving into September, but this August, our big uh, outreach, the back-to-school outreach. You know, one of the things that I want to do as a pastor is to lighten the load on people. Oftentimes, we kind of jump into these moments and receive this, we need a big offering, we got to handle this. And that happens, and it may still happen at times, but I try to uh, trail it out a little bit. So for instance, we, we created a, an initiative called Vision Forward, where we asked 100 families to give $25 a month for the last several months, because we want to raise $7,000 for our outreach. So if you haven't done that, go ahead and jump in right now for the next couple of months. But, but I'll tell you this, um, I, I want you, the reason why I spread it out like that is because I want to help your budget and your family. I think sometimes we miss that as pastors. We just jump in and, and we forget that some of you are sending kids to camp and some of you are trying to pay for baseball camp and all the things that you are doing. And I want to make sure that we honor you in that. So we probably will receive a special offering if we don't get to the 7,000. But if we do, that would be awesome. Amen? Amen. Well, I remember when I was in seventh grade, a long time ago, I was kind of a weird kid. Thanks. You'll just, look at, you'll just agree. Nobody even laughed. It's like, of course you were. Nevertheless, seventh grade, right? I was kind of a weird kid. I, I, I had friends, I promise. Uh, we, we, you know, we'd play football. We would, you know, throw eggs. And, I mean, we'd do all the stuff with junior high kids. Don't throw eggs, kids. But nevertheless, we, we, we did all kinds of craziness. I had good friends. But there was one thing that I loved more than probably I should have. There's one thing I loved to do is on a good Friday night, this would be an amazing Friday night for me, is to... Amazing Friday night is to go to the store, buy a model and a brand new tube of model glue and sit there and make it. Yep, that's me. I love to make models. It was great, right? So after a while, I kind of accrued a large number of these little models, these cars, and I'd make them. Let me tell you, this. I'd not only make them, but then I would paint them. But you know the paints I used? My sister's fingernail polish. They didn't like that, but it was awesome. Nevertheless, that was turned out red. But, but I'll tell you the, the, the funny thing, right? I, I remember loving all these models, and, you know, I'd make them, and I would imagine me driving them, and one day when I was 16, I was going to get one just like that. I mean, all the things that I did, right? And so one day I realized I, I needed to display these models because they're worthy of display. I wanted to have that happen, right? So it just so happened that my mom was painting something in the living room, and she took a bunch of shelves off the wall. There were these floor-to-ceiling shelves that had different shelves hooked up on it, and, and we were thinking, like, that's awesome. That's perfect. That's what I want, right? And so I went up to my mom, and I said, Mom, what are the odds? Can I use that shelf in my room? And she said, yes, but, right? When you hear your mom say, but, listen, Yes, but wait for your dad to get home to hang him up because he needs to help you learn how to do it properly, right? There's shelves. Wait for your dad? What's the point of waiting for your dad? It's a shelf. Come on, right? So lo and behold, absolutely, I hung the shelves myself. I put it up against the wall. I grabbed some nails, and I tapped in right into the sheetrock, right? A nail, pow. You know how easily nails goes into sheetrock? Super easy, right? So, pow. In fact, I did so many because it was so easy. Pow, 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 everywhere. Sheetrock, all over the place. Just tapped it right in there. 
Then I went and I grabbed my models and I put them up on the shelf and I realized they'd look better if they were sideways and the doors open, right? So it was awesome. I put my little trophies up there on my shelves. I was so proud. I wanted everyone to see it, right? We were putting them up there and having them be there was amazing, man. I wanted everyone to see it. Then I went into the living room. It was Christmas time and and I remember at Christmas time, you know, they, they had these Christmas specials. Charlie Brown Christmas was on TV. Those were the days when if you missed it, you missed it for the whole year, right? So, so I remember that whole deal, right? So I go into the living room with my milk and cookies. I'm going to watch Charlie Brown Christmas. I sit down, and in the other room, all I hear is crash, bang, 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 all over the place. Have you ever had something in your life that you put your heart and soul into? You know that thing in your life when you, you, you put everything you have into it. Maybe, maybe it's that, that business you started. Maybe it's that investment you made. Maybe it's that relationship you got into that people said you shouldn't have got into. Maybe it's that thing, whatever it is, that thing you put all your heart into and it came crashing down around you. Has that ever happened to you when you put all your eggs in a basket and the next thing you know, I'm going to start that business. I'm going to make that investment. I'm going to do that thing. I'm going to volunteer for that ministry. And you give everything you are, and then it just comes crashing down around you. Hmm. I want to talk to you this morning. We're starting a new series. This new series is going to be out of the book of Haggai. So you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. I want to talk to you this morning about how to get back to restoration. The very thing that only God can do is restore us. The thing that God wants to do is restore us. And I'm not talking about reinvent what you've got, but just a, a time of restoration. The book of Haggai comes in the Old Testament. Some of you are like, Haggai who? Right? It's, uh, it, Haggai is a little teeny book in the Old Testament. Some of you are like, I didn't know there was a book in there called that. Right? Haggai was known as a minor prophet. Right? It, it's not a, as opposed to a major prophet. Right? The, major pro- the reason why he was called a minor prophet was because his book only spanned two chapters. So if I challenge you all to read the book of Haggai, you could do it one breath. Right? I'm telling you, it's two little chapters, the book of Haggai. But it is loaded because the word of God is living and breathing. Right? I'm telling you, it's loaded. Haggai was known as a minor prophet because his book was small, as opposed to Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Those guys had huge passages in your Old Testament. They were called the major prophets. <clears throat> now Haggai, I'll give you a little background. He was a prophet that was given to the nation of Israel. And he had a message that he was supposed to give to the nation of Israel to a group of people that were called exiles. You ever heard of the exiles? The exiles, let me help remind you of the exiles. The children of Israel, well, did absolutely everything opposite of what God told them to do. Right? What are the odds? Aren't you glad we're not like that? Children of Israel did that, right? And as a result of it, this guy named Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came and took them all as prisoners of war, basically. This was the same time. Remember Daniel and the lion's den, Daniel? Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego guys? Fiery furnace. You know the song, right? This is that captivity. This is that exile. They were all taken in exile into Babylon. For 70 years, they were put into Babylon, taken in there. Now, it's crazy because, you know, God is a really good father. You know, good fathers will discipline. <clears throat> Listen, the goal of biblical discipline is not to take your kid off. The goal of biblical discipline is to get to the heart of the child. So God puts the children of Israel into exile or captivity for 70 years. Translation, 70-year timeout chair. Takes them out of their promised land and puts them into a 70-year disciplinary timeout chair. 
All the while, their whole city, their whole promised land was absolutely growing over with weeds. The temple had been destroyed. It was a crazy, chaotic mess. Children of Israel then, at some point, get an opportunity to come back to their promised land. And so, in fact, it's kind of interesting. Before they went into exile, Jeremiah, one of the contemporaries, probably in exile himself, before they went into exile, Jeremiah says this. He says in 29 verse 10, Jeremiah 29 verse 10. Some of you are familiar with Jeremiah 29 verse 11. You remember verse 11? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, that one. Let's go back up to verse 10. This is before the exile. Here's what happened. Jeremiah 29 10. The truth is that you will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things that I promised. I will bring you home again. Verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. He goes on. Get this. 120 years before this moment, 120 years before the exile, 120 years before things were bad enough to take them into a 70-year timeout chair, 120 years before that, Isaiah the prophet prophesied this. Verse 3, chapter 39, verse 6. There is a time coming when everything you have, all the treasure stored up by your ancestors, will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your own descendants will be taken away into exile. They will become eunuchs who will serve in the palace of Babylon, of Babylon's king. You know, a lot of things can happen in 70 years. A lot of things can happen in 70 years. Uh, families can multiply. In fact, if you read up in Jeremiah a little bit more than before that, he actually says, while you're in exile, have babies, make families, start businesses, build houses. He says all this stuff because while you're in captivity, here's what he said. He doesn't say, while you're in discipline, be mad. He says, while you're in discipline, figure it out. And so they were there supposed to build houses and have babies. You know, 70 years, I think a generation lasts around 20 to 25 years. There could have been two, maybe three generations born in captivity. A whole bunch of them that had never seen the promised land. They'd never been there before. So they're there. Businesses are started. Houses are built and, and passed on. Businesses are handed off to children. All that was going on in captivity. All that was happening there. A lot can happen in captivity. But then something happened after 70 years. After 70 years, Babylon was overtaken by Persia by a guy named King Cyrus. Right? So after 70 years, Babylon gets overthrown. Now, Cyrus wasn't a nice guy. Cyrus was a mean dude, and if you read about King Cyrus, he was brutal. He had some crazy things. But something happened to King Cyrus. I'll get to this. Verse, chapter, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 23. Listen to this. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled Jeremiah's prophecy by stirring the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation into writing and to send it throughout the kingdom. Pause. Listen to that. This is a wicked, evil, non-Christian, non-believing, mean king. The Bible says something here I think we need to pay attention to today, people. It says, God stirred the heart of King Cyrus. Make no mistake, God can stir the heart of any king, any president, any country. God can stir them, right? You know, the thing is, though, but... There were people praying. We need to be praying for what's going on around our crazy nation. We need to be doing that, right? Because God can stir the heart of anyone. He can stir the heart of a donkey to start talking like a human. 
Read your Bibles. Listen to this. 200 years before this moment. This was back before the exiles even showed up as exiles. 200 years before, right? This is like, for us, 200 years before us, 1800s. This was how long ago Isaiah prophesied. Get this. Isaiah now prophesies before the exile even happened. Before 200 years. Colonel Andrew Jackson, right? So, I mean, all that stuff was going on. 200 years. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 44. Chapter 28, verse 28. This is what Isaiah says. Isaiah says, When I say of Cyrus, he's my shepherd, he will certainly do as I say. He will command that Jerusalem rebuild and be rebuilt and that the temple be restored. Folks, if you don't think God's word is true, we got something missing. How in the world does Isaiah jump in 200 years before and call this dude by name and say that he's supposed to and what they were supposed to do? That's exactly what God said. Hmm. Well, 50,000 of the Jews, of the several probably million of them who were in captivity, decided, 50,000 of them decided to take all of their life, their, their homes, their families, their everything, and uproot and go back to the promised land. All of them just decided, hey, listen, it's time. Well, they didn't take the train, right? They didn't take the plane. They took their feet for 900 miles through the desert to go back to the promised land. They did it all, right? Every, every step their, their foot went on. They had to think about what was going on. They were going back to the promised land, to a place that they'd only heard of, most of them. When they got there, you know what they saw? They saw a big, big mess. They saw piles of what used to be, what they, you know, because when they were little kids, their grandmas and grandpas talked to them about the temple. And they would say, oh, Solomon's temple is the most beautiful thing ever. It stood high. It stood proud. The gold, the silver, the wood, they were just the curtains. I mean, they were going on about all these great things in the temple. When they get back, you know what they see? They see a bunch of rocks in a big, ugly pile with a bunch of stuff crowded on top of it and things burned up and just a mess. Isn't that like us? Isn't that just like us? We find ourselves in a moment of freedom from captivity. In a moment of freedom from captivity, perhaps you are freed from an addiction. Perhaps you've been freed from that, that decision you made. Perhaps you've been freed from that, that, that crazy scenario you find yourself in. And isn't it funny that the moment we find our freedom, the very first thing the enemy wants to do is show you the big mess you made. He wants to show you how big a mess you made. He wants, to, he wants to remind you of all your consequences of all that happens. Let me tell you, I don't know where you are, but if you have just found some freedom, maybe you surrendered your life to Christ for the first time, and the first thing you see is the big mess that stands in front of you. Remember, the devil wants to discourage you. He wants to tell you you can't. He wants to tell you you'll never. He wants to tell you you'll always. He wants to make you feel like you can't do this. He wants to get you to worry. He wants to make you think it's all up to you. He wants to make you think you have to do this. In fact, I think it's interesting that once you find freedom at some place in your life, the very first thing that happens is we see this big problem, this big mess we have to fix. And then you know what we begin to do is we start to worry. We start to worry. You know, you know why we start to worry? We start to worry because we feel like it's up to us to solve the problem. But we start to worry because we feel like we have to fix everything that we did to make the mess. We have to go make it right. We have to do all the problems. We, we, we. And worry begins to take place. I find it interesting that the very thing God told the children of Israel to do very first when they got back, you know what he told them? Build the temple. In fact, Cyrus told them to do it. A wicked king, somebody who's crazy, didn't even know any better. He tells them to build the temple. What's the temple? The temple is the place where they worship God. The temple is the place where they met with God and God met with them. 
See, it was the Old Testament, so they didn't have the Holy Spirit floating around like we do in our own our hearts. The Holy Spirit would show up in places, right? The temple was the place that they offered sacrifices, and they worshiped at the temple. Listen to this. God tells them, leave captivity and go to that place that's a mess. But listen, when you get there, worship, not worry. When was the last time you got the twinge of worry and your first thought was worship? It's nuts. It's crazy. Why does it make any sense? Worry, worship. Worry, worship. Worry, worry. See, so many of us are like this. We're just like, okay, Lance, I get it. I'm just going to worship. Here's what we do. We look at worry, and we're just like, worry. Then we're just like, oh, God, you're so good. You're so good. Worry, worry, worry. God, you're so good. You think you're worry, worry, worry. Because we keep on thinking it's about us. Just worry, worry, worry. The whole time, we're just going to worry. We're like, okay, God, okay. But the thing is, is we just keep on worrying. I'll never pay that bill. I'll never get that thing fixed. You'll never forgive me. All that kind of stuff. We just keep on worry, worry, worry. And we forget to worship. What is worship? Worship isn't standing there singing songs. I mean, we do have a great worship team, but it's not just that. Worship is when you take your focus off your stuff and you put it on him. Worship is when you, worship is when you have the stuff in front of you and you say, God, I'm an idiot and you're not. God, I'm little and you're big. Worship is like, God, I can't figure it out, but you can. Worship is like, you know what, God, there's nothing, no one like you, God. I'm, worship, you know what happens when you worship? You can't worry. But you know what happens when you worry? You can't worship. See, God knew what he was doing. God knew what he was doing all along. He was trying to get them to take their eyes off of the mess and just do what he told them to do. Restore worship. Man, if you walk away from here today with one thing, I want to tell you that, get this. Um, you know what we kind of, I always tend to think, I always try to use the enemy's goofy ploys against him. And get this. Here's what I want you to do. You ever drive your car and the light comes on, the little thing that says change your oil, get gas? We call those idiot lights, right? right. But, but it's supposed to be just a warning, right? It's actually telling you you should have done something, but you didn't. Now do it, right? Here's what I want you to do. The next time you feel the twinge of worry, I want you to view it as a warning light. Just worry. You're just like, ah, what am I going to do? How am I going to pay? What am I going to say? She'll never forgive me. I... Just the moment you feel the twinge of, wor of worry, Jesus you have the answer to this. I can't figure it out. You're way bigger than me. What if that worry became the idiot light to start worshiping? What if worry became the warning sign for you to start worshiping? What if every time you felt the twinge of worry, you said, mm -mm, God, you're good. What if you began to worship every time you started to worry? Let me tell you this. Things would change. You would change. See, the whole point, God, does, God doesn't just like hungry for worship. God knew that when we put our hearts where it was supposed to be, he could put him where he was supposed to be. And he would become the Lord that he always was in our lives. Worship over worry. Ezra chapter 3, verse 3. As they were building, get this, and by the way, it says early on in Ezra chapter 3 that they, they ended up starting to build the temple. Once they got to the mess, they started to build the temple. In Ezra chapter 3, it actually says this. Even though the people, the exiles, were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar on its old site, and they immediately began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar that the Lord did every morning and evening. It's interesting, right? They actually were obedient for a minute. They were obedient for a minute. They kind of did what they were supposed to do. 
They get back there, they see the big mess, they realize we can't solve the problem, so they started to worship. They actually did something right. But it says that there was an enemy. Remember early on, it says that there were people there, local residents, that were kind of picking on them. How many of you know that you could get picked on for a while, but after a while, you either run from it or embrace it. Let me tell you this. These people, the children of Israel, who got back, started to rebuild the temple, do what they were supposed to do. You know what they started to encounter? Opposition. You can't do this. You shouldn't do this. Every time you put worship over worry, you're going to get opposition. And as they started to worship and do what they were supposed to do, restoring the altar, the temple, started doing what they were supposed to do, the inhabitants of the place, the people who were nearby said, you can't, you shouldn't, you won't. And so they quit working on the temple for 16 years. They just stopped worshiping. And they started working on their own homes. They started doing their own things. They started, you know what, it's not time to work on God's house. We're going to work on our houses. We're going to do our things. They literally did obedient things for a few years and then pow, just stopped doing what they were supposed to do because they got tired of the nitpicking from the enemy. Some of you today are in that same place. You are headed in the right course. You had it going in the right direction and something knocked you off course and you believed it. You've been hanging on way too long and you've stopped work for 16 years, 26 years, 46 years. Some of us have just kind of put God on the wayside and you ended up at church today and you don't know how. Let me tell you this, God brought you here to remind you of something. This is where Haggai the prophet comes in. Now Haggai chapter one, open your Bibles there. Haggai, this is where Haggai starts his journey. He begins to tell them what happens. He was the prophet who jumped in after the 16 years of of non-working on God's temple, 16 years of no worship. This is what he says in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. It says, I love it. Haggai has actually, it's in the NI, and the New Living Translation puts actual dates in here. It's kind of neat. August 29th, the second year of King Darius's reign, the Lord gave a message through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The people are saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's temple. So the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? This is what the Lord Almighty says. Consider how things are going for you. You planted much, but you harvested little. You have food to eat, but not enough to fill you up. You have wine to drink, but not enough to satisfy your thirst. You have clothing to wear, but not enough to keep you warm. Your wages disappear as though you are putting them into pockets filled with holes. Hmm. Nothing wrong, nothing was wrong with them working on their own houses. I think it was okay for them to work on their own houses. It was okay for them to, to build a room for their kids and their wife and take care. It was okay for them to start businesses. They needed someone to make some tools to build the temple. They needed some things to happen. It was okay for them to do that. The problem was is they did that instead of what they were supposed to do. They didn't do it alongside. They, they, they neglected exactly what God told them to do. God said, listen, be about focusing. Your primary focus is to build the temple. And they just decided, no, nah, it's more important that we just build our own stuff. In fact, some of your Bibles say that they built houses, paneled houses, right? The NLT says, translation, it says, a luxurious houses. Some of the, one of the commentators I was reading actually said this. It said that they actually, because all the, all the, uh, uh, um, all the materials needed to restore the temple were there. The logs from Lebanon, the gold, the silver, actually says this. 
some of the children of Israel took the things that belonged to restore the temple and built it into their own home. They took what belonged to God's and used it for themselves. Hmm. And ended up creating a big, ugly train wreck. Hmm. You know, I think one of my favorite verses in this whole particular list of verses is verse 5. I think this is what a loving father does. A loving father wants to always make you see what's going on. Look what it says in verse 5. Verse 5 of chapter 1 of Haggai says this. Consider how things are going for you. Hmm. This is what a good dad would do. A good dad would say, consider how things are going for you. In other words, take a look around you. Look, man, you put these houses, you thought it would be, you thought everything would be great if you had the nice house. You thought everything would be awesome if you got married to that person. You thought it would be great if you started that job and quit the other one. You even thought it would be amazing if you quit that church and went to that one. All was going to be better. <laughs> and then God shows up with verse 5. Consider how it's going for you. Just take a look around. Consider how those decisions worked for you. You've been doing it your way now for, well, 16 years. You've been doing it. How's it working for you? This is where Dr. Phil got it. <laughs> consider how things are going for you. When was the last time you stopped to consider how things were going for you? Most of the time we get to that moment of considering how things are going for us, and the first thing we do is yell at God. God, well, if you love me, you'd fix it. God, if you care, you know, God just left me. He's quiet for me. He didn't do, instead of saying, God, things aren't going well. I need you. Hmm. Hmm. Any recovery program starts with this funny little step. Step one simply says this. Admit that you are powerless. See, I think that's what God was doing. He was trying to get them to admit that they were powerless and that they couldn't solve the problem themselves. And because they admitted they were powerless, that's the, that's the whole point of the Ten Commandments. The whole point of the Ten Commandments was to admit you're powerless. You can't do it. You need God. Admit that you are powerless. This, this whole message is all saying, I'm going to do it my way. And God says, no, you can't. Now look at the mess you've made. Ad commit, go ahead, admit it. You can't. Admit that you are powerless over this thing and you can't fix the problem. Hmm. Let me give you a little spoiler alert of these two chapters in Haggai. Right? So if you don't want to hear it, plug your ears. Here's the spoiler alert about Haggai, because it's chapter two, chapter one and verse two, chapter one and chapter two. Super let's, here's the here's the spoiler. They listened. They listened. And they went back and started to restore the temple. They actually built the temple. Isn't that crazy? Like they listened. When was the last time you read your Bible and they actually listened? When was the last time, when was the last time you heard the Bible and listened? They listened. They did what they were supposed to do. It's crazy, isn't it? How it just started to happen. They, they had all the stuff. They just started to rebuild the temple. They did what they were supposed to do. I always think it's funny because it took four months for Haggai to prophesy this thing. I wonder what it was like in heaven when he met Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, all those guys with the, the, the major prophets. What was it like in heaven when, when he's like, my message got out and they answered, they listened to it in four months. Yours was 40 years. I'm a, no, I don't know. I'm sure you... <laughs> No, you're a minor prophet. Let me tell you a couple, three adages before we go. Three, three quick adages about these little passages of Scripture, about the, the whole thing. Here's something I take away from today. Adage number one. God won't give you the next thing until you finish the last thing. God's not going to give you the next thing until you finish the last thing. Haggai chapter 1, verse 2 says this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The people are saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. 
The people. Who are the people? Who are your people? Who are your people that you're listening to? Like, it's always interesting. We start listening to the wrong people, and we end up getting a mess. Who are the people you're listening to? Listen, sometimes the people we're listening to force us to make really crazy decisions. The people we're listening to get us off course. Who are you listening to? God's not going to give you the next thing until you finish the last thing. You know what throws us off often about doing the last thing God told us to do? I call it the God told me's. The God told me. The God told me's. Those get you off course all the time. The God told me's. Because you're heading in a direction and God tells you it's time to head into some heavy ground. We're going to do the heavy lifting. This is going to be harder than you think. It's going to be a bit of a dry time, but you're going to walk through this thing. And you immediately get the God told me. God told me I'm supposed to go that way. God, everyone gets the God told me's when it gets hard. When it gets hard, everyone shows up with the God told me. Everything gets crazy. God, God told me to leave. God told me to get a new marriage. God told me to get a new job. God told me to leave that church. God told me that I don't have to do this all the time. The God told me to show up really fast. I just want you to know something. If you remember this, remember this. God's not going to give you the next thing until you finish the last thing. And so if the God told me to go against the last thing, probably not God. Write that down. We don't want to hear that. The God told me, because we just throw that out so flippant and easy. I remember when I was, uh, Polly and I were uh, getting ready to leave to go plant a church. This is 25 years ago. We were going to go plant a church. I was so excited. I was an associate pastor. I was a worship leader. I knew I wanted so desperately to plant the church. And, and I remember we went off to the training we were supposed to do. And I'm literally, in, in my mind's eye, I had my bag in my hand to tell the pastor, hey, thanks, it was awesome. I'm on my way. I'm starting my church. And he says to me, hey, Lance, um, my wife and I have been praying. We feel like you're supposed to stick around one more year. And I was like, that's not God. I promise you, that's not from Jesus. Immediately, I was just like, God told me I'm supposed to. God told me, God told me. And all I could hear inside my heart of hearts was, no, man, I told you to stay. They asked my wife, we should stay around one more year. Here's what she says, amen. <laughs> I was like, no, stick with me. Some of you are facing some real hard times, and the easiest thing you can do is go to the God told me it's too fast. I'm not saying God doesn't speak. He can speak at any time. He can, change, he can do whatever he wants to do. But listen, God wants to have you finish the last thing. Maybe it's to ask her for forgiveness. Maybe it's to tell him you're sorry. Maybe it's to go back and fix that thing that you broke. Maybe it's to restore that relationship with that coworker. Maybe it's to trust him with your finances. What's the last thing he asks you to do? Do that thing. And then watch, the, then watch what God does. Adage number two that I take from this. You can't carry water in a leaky bucket. You can't carry water in a leaky bucket. Look what it says in Haggai chapter 1, verse 6. You planted much, but you harvested little. You have food to eat, but not enough to fill you up. You have wine to drink, but not enough to satisfy your thirst. You have clothing to wear, but not enough to keep you warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them into pockets filled with holes. You know, God told them to rebuild the temple. God told them to go back there and take care of that stuff. You know, it's amazing. All too often, we forget that we can't carry water in, an, in a leaky bucket. Right, right? In other words, God tells them a couple of things. He told them he, wants to, he wanted their time, their talents, and their treasures. He said, listen, when you're worshiping me, I own those things. I'm, your, I'm, I'm God, you're not. Your time, your talents, and your treasures. Do you realize that God anticipated, he expected, you know what God expected? He expected us to work six days and take a Sabbath. Don't know if you realize that, but it still stands true today. 
What happens if you don't work six days and, and don't take a Sabbath? Stress, worry, anxiety, fear. All, all that stuff wakes up. Consider how things are going for you. Here's the funny thing. The children of Israel, get this, were disobedient. God told them this. He said early on, he said in the Old Testament, he said, listen, guys, you have farmlands. Work the land for six years. On the seventh year, don't work the land. Let it grow over with weeds. Give the land a Sabbath. Isn't that crazy? He says, actually, work for six years. On the sixth year, if you do what I'm going to tell you to do, on the sixth year, I'll give you a bumper crop, and you'll have more than enough to last you more than that next year, but a year after that. He says, just do it my way. Stop and don't, don't farm the land on the seventh year. But like any one of us would say, like, that's crazy. Run your business for six years, then don't run it. That's nuts. How would you guy come on? Isn't that nuts? So here's the funny thing. They did that for 490 years. Do the math. They were held in captivity for 70 years. God got his Sabbath back for that land. Let me tell you this. God wants the dirt to take a rest. He wants you to take a rest. And what happens when you don't? God gets it back. He did it, right? That's what God says. He says for you to do that. He intended for us to do that with our time, our talents. God intends us to like give our talents to him. God gave us all gifts. Every single one of us has a gift. He wants us to use it for him. He wants us to say, I wake up in the morning and say, I, I can do this. If you don't know what your talent is, ask somebody next to you. They see it more than you do. Most of us can't tell our talents. We think, I don't have any gifts. I don't have any talents. Ask the person that's nearest you. Hopefully they like you. But, but then let them tell you. They don't like you. Don't listen, right? <laughs> your time, your talents, and your treasures. You know, God was serious about this tithing thing. It's so funny because we usually get uptight about tithing. I love talking about tithing because not just because I like money. It's not the issue. It has nothing to do with money. Tithing has everything to do with trust. That's the whole thing. Hey, work the land for six years and let it sit for a seventh. That's nothing but trust. Holy smokes, trust. God says the same thing with your finances. He says, do it, do it my way. He's, in fact, even God says this. This is the one time in the Bible God says, you know what, tithe. He actually says this in the book of Malachi. Test me in this. I've heard people say before, I just wish God would prove himself to me. Just God, show up and prove yourself to me, then I'll believe you. Here's what he says. Here's where I will. If you really want me to prove myself, test me in the tithe. You guys want to see a miracle show up? Start tithing. Watch God do what he does. I even think, just watch. Just watch. Some of you, this is the last thing God asked you to do. Do that thing. And watch God show up in crazy, ridiculous ways. Hmm. Adage number three. When you don't know what to do, just do the next right thing. When you don't know what to do, when you're not sure what you're supposed to do and you forget the last thing God told you to do, you didn't know exactly what you're supposed to do, do the next right thing. Not the next feeling thing, not the next want-to thing, but the next right thing. Listen to what it says in Haggai chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Then the high priest and the whole remnant of God's people obeyed the message of the Lord. They did the next right thing. I love the fact that they did the next right thing. They, didn't, they were confronted with what to do and how to, how to solve the problem. They thought, you know what? Haggai, you're right. You're absolutely right. We're just going to do what we're supposed to do. They did the next right thing. What's the next right thing in your life? 
What was the last thing God asked you to do? Do that thing. That's the next right thing. But let me tell you this. Some of you are caught up in so much worry and anxiety, you don't even know where to start to do the next right thing because there's so many crazy ideas going through your mind. And the next right thing for you to do is simply this. Take a nap. Just go home, put your head on your pillow, and take a nap. Because worry just keeps you crazy. Right? I'm just telling you, anxiety throws you off. The next right thing just might mean to start serving, start being somebody else's life, make dinner for your neighbor. What's the next right thing? Do that thing. That's all they did is they just started to restore worship like they were supposed to. They did the next right thing. You know, in that, um, I got up from the living room after hearing the big crash. Walked out into, I, I stood up for a second. I wondered what it was. I thought, clearly that's not my shelf. I, I made my way back into my room and, and I walked into there, nothing but a huge mess. I mean, it was like, Boards everywhere, my models were all broken, I have trophies, wherever. everything was just a mess, man. It was just this crazy, chaotic mess. And I was like, what, what, what? And I heard my mom's voice. <laughs> I told you, I told you to wait. That everything inside of my humanity, so I could do it myself. And when I did, I made a mess. Some of you today are living in the midst of the mess because you couldn't wait and do it God's way. God wanted to restore worship instead of worry. God wanted to make them walk in this thing and trusting him. You, you know what the promised land is? I've told you this before, but it bears repeating. The promised land for us as New Testament believers, see, Old Testament believers, the promised land was simply real estate, right? They, were, they weren't in the promised land, then they went to the promised land because they needed to, right? They were here out in the desert, God brought them to the promised land. They were away from the promised land, God brought them to the promised land. Remember, when you read your Bibles, always read the Old Testament with New Testament filters. New Testament glasses and read through the Old Testament that way. In other words, what does the promised land mean to you and me? That God's intention is to give us some real estate? Is that the idea? God wants to give you a promised land? Some of us think the promised land is heaven. Let's go to heaven. Well, if, it's, if the Old Testament is giving us an understanding of the New Testament, then the promise, Moses didn't go into the promised land. Remember, God banned him from it. So the promised land cannot be that place called heaven. Let me tell you what I think the promised land is for you and me. Hebrews talks about it. The promised land for you and me is a place of spiritual maturity. I think the promised land is maturity. I think what happens is that so many of us walk into the promised land, we experience the great things of God, we think to your, ourselves, wow, I got myself here all by myself. And you, you hang out in the promised land, you have some spiritual maturity, things start going well, you walk away from God, you get mad at God because he's not doing it your way, and then you come out of the promised land and you end up in the desert. And then you begin to do things right, hear God's voice, get back into the promised land. It's this crazy cycle we do all the time. Where are you in that cycle? See, God wants you to be in the place of promise. God wants you to be in that place of rest, as Hebrews says. But it's going to come because we're doing it his way, not our way. So I want to pray for you this morning. Can we do that? Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word. Thank you that the Bible is so clear and so relevant for today. Just, just quietly, Lord, as we're all quiet and sitting before you, I pray that you would bring to our mind's eye those places in our life that, God, that stand in the way of our promise. The places that we've made decisions and they ended up as big messes. Those places that we said we're going to do it our way and it ends up becoming the wrong way. 
If that's you right now, which if you breathe and blink, it is you. I just pray right now, you would ask God for forgiveness. Just say, God, forgive me. I, I, I forced this one. I, I tried to make it happen. I did it all, and all I did was create a mess. Just say, God, will you forgive me? I can't keep doing it this way. Just forgive me, God, for all the crazy decisions I've made, and especially that one. And Lord, I pray right now as you bring those to our mind's eye that you help us to realize what the next right thing to do is. Show us, God, the next right thing. Show us how to go back and do the last thing you asked us to do. And God, I pray that you restore your people. Restore us, God. Say that with me. Say, restore me, Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You learned something out of the Old Testament today? Isn't it good when you read the Old Testament? I'm starting to fall in love with the Old Testament more than ever. I know a pastor, pastor that I know, he like never preaches out of the Old Testament because he doesn't think it's relevant. I'm like, you're crazy. There's so much about it. Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet?